0: If what you're manufacturing is desperation, how in the world do you expect desperate people to act better? It doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive in every possible way.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Josh Ho, who is a policy analyst at Safe and Just Michigan and host of the Decarceration Nation podcast, which is a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I spoke with Josh about how his path in life, which included some time in prison, took him to work in criminal justice reform and what he's up to with his podcast and his other work. I thought it was a good conversation. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Josh Ho at Safe and Just Michigan. Josh, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Sure. Uh, My name is Josh Ho. I'm the host of the Decarceration Nation podcast, and I'm also a policy analyst at Safe and Just Michigan uh, and do a lot of activism work outside of uh, my normal work in criminal justice reform.
1: I bet that you have a little bit of a different path to policy analyst and decarceration podcast host than one might think. Tell me a little bit about how you grew up, and what what your path was before you had these jobs.
0: It is kind of an interesting path because I grew up uh, kind of a poor kid in New York City, moved all over the country as my father tried to find better and better employment, building towards middle-class lifestyle. But I always had pretty good education. My parents were very invested in all of the kids in my family being uh, pretty well-educated and so I went to pretty good schools all the way through. And in high school, I found debate, uh, ended up being pretty pretty good at it, and ended up winning a college national debate championship. And then was a coach for a really long time. So I was adjacent to policy work and teaching people who went into policy work as a coach for a very long time. And so while I wasn't really doing policy work, I was more teaching people about advocacy and about argumentation. The things that we talked about were always deeply involved in public policy. And then when I was about, I guess I was 42, I got arrested and went to prison for three years. And that's how I got the firsthand involvement and information that got me kind of passionate about criminal justice reform. Because I think what most people tell you who've been through the system is that your understanding of how criminal justice and our criminal justice system works is worlds different before you get arrested or before you uh, do time than afterwards. You see the realities of it. I'm not just talking about what happened to me. I'm talking about the things I saw happen to other people. In fact, I was very lucky in my incarceration and really didn't have a lot of bad things happen to me. Uh, but I certainly saw an incredible amount of terrible things happen to people all the way through the system. And as a result, I had you know I still have a lot of friends who are inside. I have a lot of friends who were inside who are outside. and as a result, I'm very passionate about trying to make sure that we create a better system for everybody and one that actually works to heal people instead of trying to simply punish and warehouse. That makes sense.
1: I'm curious about this debate thing that that took so much of your fancy. What was it that attracted you to that right from the get-go? Uh,
0: you know, I've always been very invested in politics and very interested in that kind of stuff, and, and that's always been something that I'm drawn to. Uh, you know, I was involved in campaigns very early, those kind of things. And then I also have just always loved a good argument. And I don't mean the kind of argument where everybody yells at each other. I mean the kind of argument where – you know, you're really trying to get all the best arguments on both sides to try to find the best possible solutions to to real problems. And that's not really the way that we do things in politics as a general rule, unfortunately. I mean, there's a lot of gamespersonship within debate, but a lot of what you're doing in debate is looking at the best arguments on both sides and trying to find the best possible synthesis of positions to solve real problems.
1: So, what does make a good argument? How do you construct a good argument?
0: Well, I think in the traditional sense, people would say you have to have a claim, you have to have a warrant, and you have to have backing and backing is the evidence by which you kind of support whatever you're saying and you know so that's the the basic building blocks of of, of an argument. but then there's also you know persuasion has a lot to do with it. the way you present arguments how you represent all the different ways that you you represent when you're talking when you're you know looking at people when they're looking at you, those all have an effect on the impacts of your arguments as well. So it's a it's a fairly large thing but what we try to teach people you know when I used to do that kind of work is that you know you' you should not just be persuasive your arguments should also be strong and, and well backed.
1: having that training and having worked at training other people, which is often the best way to learn actually, Do you find that permeating your personal life and your life on as a host of a podcast? Do you, are you referring in your head to like a rubric about how to persuade someone else or how to argue effectively?
0: I mean, I'd like to think that it all just becomes part of how you look at everything. It's not like there's a, a uh, jigsaw puzzle in my mind and and I'm putting the pieces in, they're all just sitting there and I just have to put them in, in the right places. It's more like after, you know, being involved in that for my entire life, all of those things are somewhat inherent in the way that I approach things. And so it's more automatic and less probably thoughtful, but all of those things you'll see still come out in the work. Hopefully that I do, I I would assume.
1: Tell me about that college debate championship, because that sounds like a, quite an experience. It's the sort of thing Ted Cruz did too, right?
0: (laughs) Well, sort of, we had different kinds of debate. Ted, Ted did what's called parliamentary debate, which is non evidence-based debate. And it's not that that's bad. I'm not like, you know, it's just a different form of debate. And I did evidence-based debate, which, you know, we, we actually go and do all the research. So he would show up at a tournament and they'd say, here's a topic. And then people would have a discussion about that topic without evidence to see who could come up with the cleverest things and things like that. And that takes a certain skill set. He obviously was very talented at that skill set. The kind of debate that I did was a combination of everything like that. But you also have to be able to back all of your arguments with evidence. There's all kinds of structures of arguments that they don't have in their kind of debate, things like that. It's it's just a more research-based form of debate. And so they're they're just very different kinds of debate, but yes, it was the same kind of thing. I mean, they are both debate, you know. I mean, it, it's just different kinds of debate.
1: So who were you up against?
0: Oh, everybody. I always joke around because the when I won the National Debate Championship in 1990, the case that we ran was a case to get the United States to be more invested in solving the problems of global warming. <laughs> <laughs> and that was in 1990. <laughs> And here we are in twenty twenty one and none of the things that we suggested in nineteen ninety have yet to happen. So we were way ahead of the curve on needing to fix it. Unfortunately, nobody else has caught up with us since then.
1: Is it like sports where there's like division two, division three, division one debaters? Uh, sort
0: of. There used to be two different organizations that ran college debate, and a lot of people were in one and a lot of people were in the other. I guess in the one that I was in at the time that I won. When we were at the national debate tournament for that style of debate, there were over 300 teams at that tournament. It was a pretty big, pretty big hub of lots of folks there. Um, you know, but both of them eventually merged, and now there's only one major organization in evidence-based debate.
1: If it's not too rude, I want to ask you about what happened to you at age 40. Is that something you you're comfortable talking about?
0: Generally. It's considered in the circles that formerly incarcerated people and incarcerated people travel, and it's considered rude to ask people what they did. I'm pretty open about it. It's on my profiles and my social media and stuff like that. I was, you know, unfortunately uh, made some pretty bad decisions, sent some very unfortunate text messages to, you know, people I should not have sent them to. People who are under the age of 18. And I did several years of prison for that. I take full responsibility for it. I've, Definitely done everything I can to make amends. I, I one of the things that I, I I try to explain to people is to me, and I think uh, it should be to a lot of people, the idea of accountability is an ongoing concern, and it's not something you say or something you do; it's something you live. And so, to me, kind of the way that I approach all of this stuff is that you know it's my job to be accountable every day. In every way, even when that's uncomfortable for me. Now, at the same time, I don't always believe that I owe everybody a debt. You know, I mean, they say that you pay your debt to society when you serve your sentence. I may not have paid my debt to anyone who I harmed, but to all the people I didn't harm, I don't owe them more than I've already paid, and I've paid a lot, you know. So it's a kind of complicated thing because I think it's important for people who have been, you know, in my case, I suffered abuse when I was young. Uh, So I'm both a victim of crime and a perpetrator. And so I think it's important to be out there and talking about these issues and to represent that, you know, people do come back and people do change and people do try to make a difference in the world. You know, I have a friend who, you know, at a very young age committed a murder. And when he came back, you know, a couple of years after he got back, he opened a warming center during the polar vortex. And I'm pretty sure probably saved some lives. The truth is, there's, you know, I know a very large number of people who've done all kinds of terrible things and have come back to make huge differences in their community. And, you know, if people don't ever see the people doing that, since I've been back, you know, I, I worked on passing the First Step Act over, you know, I think it's 17,000 people have come back from prison as a result of that. Last year at, you know, I work at as a policy analyst, we helped pass over 40 pieces of legislation. There's a lot of us who are very committed to trying to make the world a better place and to making, you know, being accountable for the harms that we've done.
1: I've talked to a reasonable number of people who have gotten themselves into trouble uh, to the point of prison on on this podcast. And most of them as young people, and then turned it around, and one or two uh, as adults. My sense is that we're getting better about In theory, forgiving people and letting them have a fresh start. But do you think that's true or not?
0: I think it's a shallow change. And what I mean by that is that there, so we were heading in a really good direction. A lot of really good things were happening. And then the minute that some crime trends changed, and they are terrible, we, you know, over the last, you know, two years, we've had an increase in gun crimes and and homicides in this country, all across the country. And it's terrible unfortunately, what's ended up happening is even people who used to be aligned with people doing reform work and with forgiveness work, in a lot of ways, flipped back to the tough on crime narratives that we were moving away from. And it's unfortunate because one of the things that we've noticed with the homicide increase is that that homicide increase has happened in the exact same way across the country in jurisdictions with Democratic mayors, with Republican mayors, with tough-on-crime prosecutors, with reform prosecutors, with criminal justice reform, with no criminal justice reform, with increased police funding, or with decreased police funding, which suggests that it's not really about policy. There's something else going on that we don't really understand.
1: It feels like the politics, it's an area where the exploitation of fear is very easy, obviously. Like the Willie Horton ads in the first Bush campaign. the way Trump begins his uh, his run in 2016 is certainly like plays right for that. And it's a very powerful force. And I, I even feel like I'm I think the more you know about incarceration, the more you're close to it, the more you understand the numbers and the waste that's going on, the more maybe you're open to reform.
0: One of the things I like to say is, so we have this crime, you know, we have this increase in homicides. And, you know, at the same time, we spend $80 billion a year on police and $80 billion a year on incarceration. We have the largest incarcerated population in the world. If those are the answers to the problem, why do we still have a problem? (laughs) You know, we spend more than anyone else in the world on this stuff. We're not fixing it at all.
1: And we have significantly worse crime problems than most places on earth, too, even though we've incarcerated a higher percentage than almost anybody.
0: When I'm giving speeches or when I'm out doing things that I always say is that, you know, people have to have hope for a better future when they come home if you want things to be different. Uh, the largest meta analysis that's ever been done on the topic says that incarceration, even accounting for incapacitation, causes more crime than it stops. And if you've been in prison, you understand why. You know, there isn't a lot of rehabilitation happening, there's not a lot of education happening. What education is happening is not very good education. There aren't jobs inside, so people aren't learning skills that are transferable. And when they get out, you can't get a job and you can't get a place to live. If what you're manufacturing is desperation, how in the world do you expect desperate people to act better? It doesn't make sense. It's, 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 it's counterintuitive in every possible way.
1: When you came out, having now spent time and really changed your life dramatically, what were the moves you made to make a living?
0: Well, I mean, for a long time, I didn't, you know, I mean, everybody, I think everybody who's been incarcerated knows you come back and you go to your first job interviews and you're like, I mean, in my case, I had, you know, I had multiple college degrees. I had been very successful for a very long time and I couldn't get a job busting tables. You know, it's, it's a tough, tough run. One of the things you learn in prison is what they call hustle. And you just keep you know, trying things until something works. And, you know, I became a freelance writer because there were a lot of people who needed web content. And so, you know, I was just barely making it. You know, it took me a long time to get to that point. And I was just barely making enough to get by, you know, and I had a pretty low cost of living uh, just doing freelance writing, writing web content for people who needed web content. And at the same time, I started to do activism and I was doing that for, you know, basically for free. And, because I was passionate about it. And, you know, I was pretty successful at that. And eventually people started noticing and started hiring me for things. And ultimately, I guess I had some talent in it. And so it's become my career in a lot of ways, but I was doing it for free before that. So
1: what is safe in just Michigan and how'd you land there?
0: Uh, It's a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization in Michigan. And, uh, you know, anyone who does organizing work in Michigan is at least on criminal justice issues is familiar with them and a number of other organizations. And, uh, you know, I just applied for a bunch of jobs there. And eventually, you know, I had some pretty good success as a consultant working on the First Step Act. And so I think between that and a few other things that I'd done, I was getting noticed from folks. And that my experience and skill set fit up with what they were looking for.
1: Are a lot of people who work there also people who've been in the system and out?
0: I think there's three of us who are formerly incarcerated who, who work there and the rest are just, you know, regular folks who are passionate about the same issue.
1: How is the state of Michigan on
0: mass incarceration issues? You know, surprisingly good in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't think that you would say that, you know, it's kind of, it's always relative. The place you don't want to be in prison is in the South. You don't want to be in you know, Georgia, uh, Alabama, Florida, Texas. South Carolina has gotten a little better lately, but they were pretty, pretty bad. Mississippi, in Alabama, they had two DOJ reports during the Trump administration. So this is that DOJ saying that they were so beyond the pale on the Eighth Amendment that they should basically be shut down there are some, some prisons in the United States that are just, I mean, none of them are good. I'm not, you know, I'm a lot of terrible things happen in Michigan prisons every day, but you know, compared to those play, I mean, it's just, it's all relative uh, on the whole, we've had a lot of success. You know, um, last year we passed the largest expansion of expungement in the United States, the clean slate package. Um, we also passed a uh, bunch of recommendations. I think the first 18 recommendations of the the jails task force that the governor put together. Which usually task forces are where they, uh, you know, send things to die. But we actually got a huge amount of stuff done. One of the largest drivers of incarceration in Michigan is driver's license revocations. In other words, you know, you didn't necessarily do something while you were driving to cause an accident or something like that, you owed a fine. And the way they try to collect for that fine is to get rid of your driver's license or say that suspend your driver's license. And then a lot of people get drawn into the criminal justice system through that because they still have to get to work. They still have to get kids around, whatever. So they end up driving without a license. They get arrested, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's one of the largest drivers of of incarceration in Michigan. We were able to get a fix to that. Uh, We were able to do some occupational licensing reform, so I would say on the whole we've had a really good bipartisan consensus uh with the Michigan legislature uh to get a lot of really good work done and uh hopefully that'll continue.
1: So you said bipartisan consensus and it seems like this is a constellation of issues unlike almost everything in our current polarized world where we've we've somehow found ways to work across the party lines of late. That First Step Act is one of those examples and sounds like there's something in Michigan. What is going on with the relationship between the parties and reforms in this area that is making it sometimes bipartisan?
0: Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of things. I mean, the first thing is the most passionate people on both sides of the aisle that you'll find that support this issue are directly impacted. So many people in this country, I mean, with the vast numbers of people that we've incarcerated over the last, you know, three decades, five decades, you know, there's so many people whose lives have been touched by incarceration. I'm not saying the people who have necessarily actually been incarcerated themselves, but people are family members, friends. You know, a lot of the lawmakers on both sides have a friend or family member who's been incarcerated. Once you've experienced the system from the other side, your view of everything changes pretty dramatically because you have kind of a romantic, kind of like the television show Law and Order version of how the criminal justice system works in your head until you actually encounter the the real criminal justice system. And once you encounter the real criminal justice system, it's very hard to look at it the same way, again, regardless of what your party background is. The second thing that's true is that there's a lot of issues that resonate with both ends of the spectrum. People who are libertarian, for instance, don't like the idea that the government is overreaching and charging too much and taking people's liberty for a number of reasons. While people on the left, you know, don't like that these things are racially disparate, that don't like that these things uh, impact communities of color. There's all kinds of inner, you know, places where we can find intersections and and learning how to talk to different kinds of people in different kinds of places, and basically. With the same message, but different words uh, has been part of the solution, I think, to getting a lot of things done. And just in the state of Michigan, our, you know, prison budget is, you know, over a billion dollars a year. You know, I mean, and that's true, I think, in most states in the country. You know, like I said, it's an 80 billion national cost. Uh, that's a, you know, that, that's not hard to convince people that there's got to be a better way to do things than the way we're doing them. You know, so I think that's part of it.
1: What's different between... The law and order version of criminal justice and the real system, as you described it.
0: I remember one of my first uh, times I walked into a courthouse. As you know, I had really never been in contact with the criminal justice system before I got arrested, and I'm just standing around waiting for my my personal hearing. And I'm looking at the the stuff on the wall, and there's a sheet there that's like all the cases that are happening that day, and so I start looking through there. There were public defenders who had like 30 cases in one week. Jesus. You know, when you think about it, how good can your representation be when your lawyer has 30 other cases in one week? It can't be be good at all. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the, you know, that's the thing is people don't understand that, you know, there's so many, just every... Every place, if we had like a three hour podcast, I could go through every single step of the criminal justice system and tell you something that would just, you know, boggle your mind about every single little step on the road, you know, and it's just, it's just not what you think it is. It's everything bad about bureaucracy. You can imagine it's a place that rewards a lot of people who go in for all the wrong reasons you know, there are a lot of very good correctional officers. There are also a lot of correctional officers that become correctional officers because they want to be able to beat people up, you know, and, they, and to do it without ever getting called for it. Prisons know this. They won't tell you this. If you're in a prison, you know there's something called, or jail, you know that they have something called a goon squad. And those are all the people, you know what they look like, you know who they are, and you know that you know what their job is, and they're to take care of any of the problems that they think arise. And they do it. You know, very efficiently and very violently. Like I said, I I knew plenty of officers who were very, very good officers and really were trying to help people and trying to do the right thing. I'm not trying to throw everyone under the bus, but you also see the bad stuff too, you know, and you see the way that therapy works. You know, you see that a very large percentage of the people who are in prison, you know, have mental health problems. And you see how therapy works in prison. They're mostly getting drugs, they're not getting help a very large number of the people in prison have substance abuse problems if you're lucky there may be a 12-step program you know if you're lucky I have no problems with 12-step but that is a that is a group that's where people get together to try to work through their problems that's not a medical treatment for substance abuse uh, that's a quasi-religious program that is can be very successful for folks I you know I have myself you know 20 years of sobriety in one, thing in 11 years in another. So I don't dislike, you know, 12 steps, but that's not treatment for substance abuse.
1: Just the idea of kind of getting into the claws of the system scares the crap out of me. I don't know how you coped with it. I don't know how other people do just to lose all control of your own independence and to be put in with a bunch of people like that. It just seems terrorizing.
0: Well, I mean, the truth of the matter is, is, you know, like I was saying earlier, you know, a lot of the people I care about the most are people who I met in prison or have known who also did time. And a lot of them did very bad things, you know, myself included. You know, I, I'm not putting myself in any other separate category. I was on social media the other day and someone asked the question, "Do you know, anyone who's killed someone? And I was like, yeah, I actually yeah. know quite a few people. If you had told me before that I was going to have a lot of close friends who had been in that situation, I would have said, you're crazy. But the truth is some of those people are the people I I care about and trust the most on the face of the planet and and know that the work they're doing is work to try to make the world a better place. And so this idea that we have that people are one thing, and once you've decided what they are, they're forever that thing, That's just there's no part of my experience that has, has validated that at all. You know, At all. Like uh, there was a guy who was in one of my cubes when I was in prison who had in a moment of, you know, he snapped about something and he ended up shooting someone. And every single day you could see how it weighed on him. You could tell the man had no idea he was capable of killing someone until he did. And how that weighed on him every single day and the guilt he felt and how much he wishes he could fix it and just how terrible he felt every single day. And that's the truth. I think with most people, we all think we're the hero of our own story. We think that we're not capable of doing anything bad. And then one day something happens.
1: Or you just get slowly sucked into something like.
0: That's more like like my situation. But I know so many people who it was really just in a minute. All of a sudden, they were shown a face they didn't know they possessed, and it changed everything about their life, and they it weighs on them every single day.
1: How do you think about like the types of things that get you into prison versus the types of things that get you canceled or shunned, and what we can forgive and what we can't?
0: You know, I mean, I think cancellation is kind of a weird thing because we really, it's like people overestimate it and underestimate it. When something comes out that there's something that you've done and everyone in the world comes out against you and it feels like the weight of the world is falling on you, a lot of those people, you know, six months, three months, a year come back and some of them are even doing better and making more money than they ever were before. But at the time, everyone was like, you're canceling this person. Even me, you know, having been incarcerated and done time and, you know, I believe what I did was wrong and I deserve to be punished for it. You know, you don't hear that very often, but you'll hear a lot of people say other things. But I, I, I don't have a problem with the fact that I went to prison. Uh, I believe that there should have been, you know, I should have accountability for the things that I did. I think that's the problem is that our justice system doesn't emphasize accountability. In fact, there was no time in the whole time that I was in, going through the process until the very end, the very, very end when I was at parole. Uh, where I was ever asked to be accountable for anything. They just assume that the incarceration is a substitute for accountability. And, you know, in a world in where we've built all these systems, where the point isn't for people to try to make amends or fix the harms that they've created, and all it is is like, let's put it over here somewhere that's true on you know social media and all these other places too. The reasons why these things become so shocking is because there was never any accountability for them. And I think people should be accountable for the bad things that they do, not forever accountable. I don't think people should you know never get forgiveness or shouldn't be able to earn forgiveness. But a lot of these are things that no one ever paid a price for. And so people get angry about it. There's a million times that people have come after me it comes with the territory and you know luckily in my case for whatever reason you know people have largely stuck with me but i think that part of that is because i don't act like what i did was okay and i don't believe i should have you know skated by or something i don't believe it was unjust and i don't think anyone should do what i did you know <laughs> i'm not walking around like cheerleading for crime that's not what i'm trying to do at for me, in both of these things, to get back to your original question, is their failures of accountability? I think, you know, we pretend our justice system is a form of accountability in a sense it is, but it's a really displaced accountability. And I think, you know, why these things have become such a big thing in social media is because in essence, someone has done something that they were never accountable for, and someone's calling them on it. And everyone else is like, yeah, you should be accountable for that. And the person usually isn't trying to be accountable for it. I think we over exaggerate the impact a lot of times on what cancel culture is, because I think it's, it's very devastating when it happens. I've definitely had people do that. And, you know, when I got arrested and, you know, since I've come back and it is very painful and it's, it's very hard to get through, but you know, it's not going to prison or something like that. (laughs) You do have a chance to come back. And a lot of people have, I hear Substack's doing quite well with a lot of folks that.
1: This is too big of a question to really answer, but if you had the magic wand that would let you reform the way the system is, like soup to nuts, what would be sort of your vision for a better way of dealing with crime?
0: Yeah, from day one, it should be about healing people and giving them tools to be successful. Maybe there's some punishment in there, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that there's no, you know, but... If you build a system where people come back worse than they went in, then you're failing. And so to me, from day one, if you get sentenced from that minute, they should be planning for your return to society. And that's what it should be about. Every company that makes money off of prisons should be invested in prisons. And what I mean by that is they should be training people uh, who are incarcerated for whatever their work is, and they should be hiring people when they get out. They should have skin in the game. Every dollar we put into prison, we should be making sure that that money is going to something that actually helps bring people back in a better place than they left, than they went in. And people will get mad because they're like, well, everyone needs, you know, lots of money for to learn better things. And why should we waste that on? Well, the alternative is you send a bunch of people back even more desperate than when they went in. And the end result of that is more crime. If you're not healing people, what are you doing? You know, I mean, yeah, it's great to have, you know, people you're afraid of off the street for a little while, but 96% of people come back. And if they come back with no hope, you're going to have a worse situation.
1: I assume that you've looked at the justice systems a little in other countries. Is there a model that you?
0: They do some tours where they take U.S. folks to other. I wasn't able to go on any of those. Uh, But I've heard that Norway is quite good. I've heard that Germany is quite good, uh, that they have a whole different kind of style where, you know, it's more like you're living in an apartment. They're really just kind of trying to provide you with services and things like that to make sure that you come out better, which is kind of what I'm talking about. There's lots of examples of this, though. You know, I mean, we have all this environmental problems all across the country with the fires in California. We have all these hurricanes. We have all these, you know, all these things are going on. It seems to me that, you know, wouldn't it be great if we took a lot of the money that we're investing in kind of, you know, just keeping these things rolling in a bad way every single day and started training people who are incarcerated to fight fires, to, you know, go out and remediate uh, environmental catastrophes to come out. And and, and every state's going to have that need in a in a warming world. And you could have whole groups of people trained over a period of time to come out and actually do something that helps their communities and have, you know, hopefully, you know, decent pay and, and medical benefits. You That would solve a lot of problems, I
1: think. Not exactly the chain gang working on the railroad, but
0: Right. Like actual jobs. And if they, you know, not if they don't want to do it, you know, I mean, if someone doesn't want to do that, yeah, but, but if they do, and they're looking for a new career, we're spending billions of dollars on that anyway. You know, wouldn't it be great if we, you know, took societal problems and kind of, you know, made everything kind of come together in a way that actually created societal benefit.
1: It would be great. What's the founding story for your podcast? How did that come about?
0: Yeah, it's uh, kind of, I wish it was more dramatic than it is. But honestly, I was doing a lot of writing at that time, as I told you earlier. And I had a blog where I was writing about a television show called Mr. Robot. And that writing was actually getting kind of popular. Um, and I got asked to be on a Mr. Robot podcast. And I went on it and it was. I, it went really well. And I was like, well, maybe I could do this. And then I went to look at like what the entry costs were. And they were very low. Very low. You know, I mean, I had, you know, you have to get a host and you have to have a microphone and you have to have a laptop. And I had all those things except for the host. I had to get the host, but I already had a microphone. I just started doing it. And at first I was just trying to figure out how to do the sound stuff myself. Uh, and that didn't go very well, but it, you know, I was still putting them out. You know, it just, I just wouldn't say the sound quality was great. And then later I had a, uh, a friend who is actually pretty talented at sound stuff. And he started helping me. Since then it's been fine, but that was really the only barrier was not understanding how to, you know, make the sound good.
1: What's the goal of your podcast?
0: Uh, you know, there's a number of goals. The first thing is to, you know, one of the things that frustrates me a lot about the way news works now is that you get, so say there's a a topic that they're going to discuss on the news. They'll have a 10 minute segment. They'll have three people. They'll make it adversarial on purpose. And then everyone will get a couple minutes and most of the time is spent kind of arguing with each other about stuff, mostly nonsense. What I wanted to do was kind of more long form educational discussions that actually went deep into the the topics and gave people a chance to really take some time and chew on it and really think about it. And I know that's not the way things work now, but I wanted to try it. Because that, to me, is much more interesting, and I personally enjoy long-form discussions much more than I enjoy sound bites. Um, and so that was the first thing. And the second thing is I wanted to show that people who are formally incarcerated could, you know, with preparation and care, sit at any table and do anything. And you know, I've been able to interview Pulitzer Prize winners, political candidates, people in office, which is pretty shocking to me sometimes. Like I just, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, interviewed a New York Times bestselling author. You know, I mean, I, you know, I've been able to talk to pretty much everyone in in the time that I've been doing it. And I'm not sure I would have ever predicted that that would happen. You know, I mean, I think the first really big interview I got was probably James Foreman Jr. Pretty soon after his book got the Pulitzer. I've been just very lucky in getting good guests and people really wanting to talk about the things that I find interesting too
1: well i found that uh, people who are trying to promote books are often happy to go on lots of podcasts and the like that's a good moment to 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 get them out there
0: it's also great for us because we get a lot of free books but
1: well, yeah what are you looking for in a guest and how do you generally go about finding them
0: ah uh, so to be honest, you know, I'm probably most known. I think when most people meet me, they ask me if I'm Josh from Twitter because I'm very active in social media and mostly on the Twitter. You know, that's where most people come in contact with me. And uh, so, honestly, most of the guests I've always gotten, I've just reached out to on Twitter. Um, lately, over the last couple of years, most of the publishers have started coming to me. So, a lot of times that gets rid of some of the intermediary stuff. I don't have to reach out as much as I used to, but for the people who aren't authors, you know, it's usually that they've done work that interests me. I read a lot, uh, of reports and studies, or they are people that are doing the work. And I know the work that they're doing is good. And I'll just reach out to them and say, let's talk about the work you're doing, you know, uh, and I'm, you know, connected enough in criminal justice that I, you know, get a pretty good idea of where and who the people are that are doing the good work. So.
1: Who do you want to have as a guest who you haven't been able to get yet?
0: Well, I mean, there haven't been many people that have said no. The person I wanted the most and actually did say no was Brian Stevenson. That was unfortunate. He was just busy. Uh, But that would have been a great one. I really wanted Brian Stevenson because that's, you know, he's kind of the one of the the big gets in criminal justice. If I just caught him right before when Just Mercy came out, everything would have been fine. Uh, You know, at some point. You know, I I really would like to interview Piper Kerman. We've kind of known each other for a long time. And I actually did uh, recaps of every single episode of the television show, Orange is the New Black, a long time ago. And so I'm very familiar, not just with her work, but the stuff that came out of her work. And we've run into each other a thousand times, more or less, and it just just never worked out. But I think we'd have a really interesting conversation. I'd love to have Miriam Kaba on. Uh, who's an abolitionist uh, activist, who I think is just an amazing human being, does just amazing work. And, you know, she really lives her message in a way that a lot of people, uh, I I think, wish they were as committed every day. She's trying to raise money for people in her community who are struggling. I wish I was as effective as she is at what I do, as as she is at what she does. I'd love to talk to a lot of the, the higher level politicians. I doubt that'll ever happen. I would love to talk to a president. I would love to talk to the attorney general.
1: Did you ever talk to Deanna Hoskins?
0: Uh, Deanna and I are old friends. We've known each other for a long time. Yeah, I'm a USA fellow, so that's- Yeah, you know, I mean, she,
1: she was. I had her on a while ago. I thought she was tremendous.
0: Yeah, she's good. She's real good people. I, we're, we're good friends. We've known each other for a long time. Yeah. And uh, she does get to have some of those interviews. So she's she's gotten to sit with I know she did an interview with uh, 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 with Kamala Harris and uh, she's done some other ones, too. Uh, she she gets to do some of that stuff. I'm hoping someday I'll get to, to I did get to. So right before Shirog Baines became Biden's special assistant for criminal justice reform, he was on the podcast literally the week before he got appointed. That's cool. Uh, so I have had, you know, kind of in that area but not quite the same level
1: (laughs) do people listen
0: yeah yeah i'm crazy and i probably would do it if no one listened but you know i mean that's not
1: but it's a niche thing right and and i don't mean nobody but like how do you what what's your goals for for audience
0: Maybe that's why I keep doing it is because my goal isn't to be Joe Rogan. You know, I'm not trying to have 10,000 people listen to my podcast every week. I'm very happy that a lot of insiders listen to my podcast, a lot of directly impacted people listen to my podcast, and uh, a lot of people who are in the field listen to my podcast. That's fine with me. And, you know, I keep trying to increase the audience just like everybody does. But if I stayed the same forever, I'd be pretty happy. I just want people to have a place where they can learn about the stuff they don't necessarily know the, the small details about where we really do go all the way deep on all the issues in criminal justice reform. If we're going to talk about parole, we're really going to talk about it. We're not going to talk about just, you know, the quick summary stuff. We just did an episode or most recent episode was with Samuel Trivedi of the, uh, of the ACLU. And every year we do a, where we go through every single case that the Supreme Court did on criminal justice. And we just talk through all of those cases. I think we did 12 cases this year. If you're looking for a 15 minute thing, that's, you know, we're probably not your thing. And I imagine in a way, it's kind of like the difference between people who like PBS or NPR and people who prefer uh, Fox or CNN or something like that. Not that I have anything against regular news per se. Or TikTok. Or TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. I'm never going to be that, you know, You know, I got a lot working against me in the first place, but I'm probably never going to be the TikTok guy. That's you know.
1: Do you listen to any other podcasts in your area?
0: Yeah, you know, I you know, I think everybody listens to Your Hustle sometimes. If you're not familiar with Your Hustle, it's a podcast about like if you were on the yard in prison, what you'd overhear, kind of. You know, it's like you know people talking in prison about stuff. Oh wow, Uh, it's a pretty popular podcast. It's probably the most popular podcast in our area. Um, It's one of the only ones that gets like a lot of. A lot of attention. Um, you know, there's a one, uh, uh, the center for court innovation does a podcast, uh, that I really, uh, I've listened to for a long time and I'm friends with the guy who uh, is the host of that. Um, you know, it, before the appeal went down, they had a couple of podcasts that were pretty good. They had a daily show that was pretty good too, that Emily Galvin Almanza was doing that. I liked, uh, I had them on right before, unfortunately the appeal went under. So, <laughs> Yeah, I listen to whatever, you know, whatever I can. Uh, you know, I'm pretty busy so I don't have as much time as I would like. You know, cuz I'm you know, I got the regular job, I've got the activism stuff and then I got the podcast stuff. There's always something happening. then uh, then the rest of the time my dog usually wants me to take her for a walk or something. So
1: <laughs> Outside of SAFE and Just Michigan, what are the other key players on the reform side of of this fight?
0: In Michigan or nationally? Nationally. Oh, yeah. I would, you know, Safe and Just Michigan is mostly based in just in, in work in Michigan. Uh, you know, uh, so, you know, you have like Reform Alliance. Uh, you have U.S. Justice Action Network. You have, uh, you know, USA. You talked about Deanna just a second ago. FAM Foundation, Hudson Weber, the uh, Dream Corps. Justice is a group that, that I used to... Uh, Consult with. There's a ton of people. It's in the su- it is
1: such a big country. It, every time you w- look into a new area of policy, it's astonishing how many people are working hard on it.
0: Most of the really, you know, the vast majority of people who are incarcerated in the United States are incarcerated at the state level, not the federal level. There is a lot of work that gets done at the federal level, and there's some really important stuff happening right now. We're trying to actually get Joe Biden to commute all of the people who are released on CARES Act home confinement. That's something a lot of organizations across the country have really been working on. If you really want to know what where what's happening, you have to know the players in every state. And you have to be willing to work with the people on the ground in those states. Someone just, you know, out of the blue, uh, you know, wrote me a letter the other day saying, hey, I'm in Illinois. Do you want to talk about parole? And I'm like, well, Sure but you should know I don't do a lot of work in Illinois. Every state has a very unique system. And I know the Michigan legislative system very well, but that doesn't mean I know anything about Illinois. Um, and so I recommended some people I know who work in Illinois. That doesn't mean that I can't be helpful or I won't have that conversation, but I, the more people realize that the big work that gets done in criminal justice reform for the most part, and there are exceptions, uh, happens at the state level. And i oh, you know, another group I probably should mention is the Alliance for Safety and Justice. That's another good national group. I'll keep thinking of them, you know, all day now that you brought it up. But.
1: Well, is there a question that I haven't asked you that I should have about? That's always my last question, too. You, <laughs> okay. you must have. Uh,
0: yeah, I think it's know, a, I,
1: yeah. It's Dan Rather's last question too on this oh, really? big interview. Yeah.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. You know, yeah. I, I I always call it the humility question. Uh, I don't say that in the thing. So a lot of times,
1: a lot of times it turns out to be the best question. You know, the sort of open ended. Somebody has something that you really left out. But not yeah, always. You
0: know, I don't think you really left anything out. You know, I mean, I think that. I hope that if people got something out of this, it's this notion that. No matter what you think of me or what you think of people who are incarcerated or, you know, you think about the way the system works or anything, it's that there has to be an answer that brings people back better. And if there's not, we're going to continue to get terrible results. And if we stopped looking at it as, oh, my God, I'm scared if we don't pass more laws and do more punishment, we're going to have all these problems and started looking at it as we have millions of people who are in serious trouble. And if we don't do something about it, there's going to be a lot of problems, (laughs) then we'd probably be in better shape. You know, we look at it the wrong way. We look at it from the wrong end. And, you know, it'll only take you, if there was a way that I could teleport every single person who's skeptical into prison for about a week, I'd walk through it with them. I'd help them get through you know by the end they would understand what i mean because you just cannot believe even i'm sure there are a million well-intentioned people who work in the systems in every place but you just would not believe how how just it's not doing anything good for anybody <laughs> it's just a terrible situation and you could not design a worse way to fix the situation in my opinion
1: well i'm glad that you found your way to working on improving it in Michigan and, and sharing with a lot of people, other people who work on it too. I think that seems like a really good way to spend a portion of your life. And, and I honor that. Um, is there anything else you want to say?
0: No, just thanks for having me on. It's really nice to get to meet you and great to talk with you. Always love to have a good conversation.
1: That was Josh Ho. Josh is at decarcerationnation.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.